0: This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, eat and become huge and large!
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gap, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix hi and this week i think it's probably the best this is the flat out best episode of the animated series <laughs> no one can argue with me you can at me all you want
0: <laughs> well i enjoyed it myself um I, i'm not going i'm gonna reserve judgment on which one's the best until later but sh- sure we'll go with that
1: yeah i don't see it passing this bar i was worried i was legitimately worried that they wouldn't be able to pull off the concept for this episode and they proved really? me wrong
0: yeah <laughs> So uh, we got got some uh, little small little uh, uh, maybe not so small this time little fuzzy critters right here. Yeah. Today in this episode.
1: So I will admit this episode has the flat out worst name. Just just full on worst name.
0: It's 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 we want to make a sequel to a previous episode, but we don't know how to name it properly. Mm-hmm. We'll just say it's more or something. There we go.
1: Yeah. This this episode is called More Tribbles, More Troubles which is a direct canonical sequel to The Trouble with Tribbles.
0: Yes. But I think at the end, at, at the end of the day, though, the, the Troubles might be more focused on one particular uh, side of things in this than, uh, than you know, Kirk having to sort, of, sort out the Tribble situation so much himself.
1: The Tribbles aren't actually causing that much of a problem in this one, honestly. Yeah, they're just kind of there. <laughs> So yeah, go check out, if you are unfamiliar, this is a sequel to The Trouble with Tribbles, the, one of the most classic and well-remembered original series episodes. We covered that a while ago. Go check that out if you're unfamiliar with this one, because this one a- actually is a sequel. It has reoccurring characters and locations and ideas. Like, they, it's It's a full-on sequel, which is pretty rare in Trek, especially this far apart.
0: Yes. It's like, you know, maybe a two party here or there, but, you know, that's a little different. And, uh, you know, but, you know, it's like, it was a completely different series. And this is basically a follow up. And uh, I guess there isn't quite something like that until Discovery does Unification Part 3. But
1: <laughs> after Next Gen. And that era of TV, you got a lot more reoccurring side characters and continuations of episodes and things. And then it started moving into what we have nowadays, which is the full on serialized television revolution where Netflix has stolen the news somehow. And all we can talk about is which TV show we should be watching all of in one night.
0: Uh, I guess at the very least, uh, this allows me to indulge my uh, my ancient interest in Flash Gordon. (laughs) like the, the old serials. <laughs> yes they're, they're pretty wacky
1: <laughs> yeah i have some views on serialized television that is beyond the scope of this podcast but <laughs> at
0: least for this episode <laughs> yes
1: for now we are we're back with tribbles this episode was also written by david gerald who wrote the original trouble with tribbles so it's a sequel written by the same person who did the original
0: and uh I recall uh, he even uh, managed to give himself a cameo in this one, unlike the the, the first one.
1: Yes, uh, I forget which person, but he does do a cameo voice, uncredited.
0: I think it was like the transporter guy that was kind of thin looking.
1: Yeah, and um, he is really fascinating. Like like having seen this and read a little bit more about him and what he contributed to uh, TNG. He didn't do a lot of writing for original series or TNG, but he submitted a ton of scripts. And a lot of his ideas for changes were incorporated into Star Trek: The Next Generation. So he's actually a, p- a pretty like seminal writer as far as Star Trek goes, even though he's only credited with a few episodes.
0: So you know, influential on the franchise, if only you know, producing a few few items of it.
1: Yeah, and we'll we'll get into this, but I feel like having seen like the original Trouble with Tribbles, which is a full-on classic, and I'm not going to argue with that, despite how much of a spoil sport I generally like to be. Uh, nostalgia and now this like i feel like he has a like one of the best handles on how to work with star trek as a series of any of the writers in original series and a lot of the writers later
0: uh, i would also like to point out that uh yeah you know, there was a story editor on this one as there is often uh and uh, it was also D- uh dc fontana so you know kind of the the two big names there coming together.
1: Uh, the dream team and we also for once in this in this animated series this i think it's only the second or third time this has happened so far we have a guest star
0: yes besides the writer
1: (laughs) yeah we've got uh stanley adams returning as cyrano jones
0: yes uh and cyrano jones spends most of the time just kind of standing there awkwardly
1: standing incredibly still Yes. In exactly the same pose.
0: <laughs> well, he moves his arms occasionally, but you know. <laughs> but, yeah, Which Stanley is also... Is here.
1: <laughs> it's also very interesting because they have Stanley Adams reprising his role as Cyrano Jones. But Cyrano Jones is only one of two recurring characters that show up in this series. But they didn't bother getting the other voice actor in.
0: Yeah, because there's also, there also this guy named Koloth who showed up previously. But they didn't actually bring his voice actor back.
1: Yes, Commander Koloth, who was the Klingon commander in the original Trouble with Dribbles, and not here again, voiced by James Doohan.
0: So, uh, yeah, James Doohan is Scotty Koloth and also Korax, because he does his own voice, and then the kind of stilted, upper, sort of, I don't know, weird voice, like this. Yes!
1: Sixties gangster Klingon.
0: yes. (laughs) Just kind of, how how much do they pitch-adjust it to uh, make it into a different character form?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Alright, we should jump in. This one's actually an interesting episode, so we might have more to talk about this time. Holy smokes! The Enterprise has been tasked with escorting two automated ships filled with quadrotriticalene, the special grain that grows on Sherman's planet, because this planet cannot keep food to save its life.
0: Yes. So remember that whole uh treaty with the Organians and you know whoever would you know be able to properly exploit this planet uh, the best would be able to uh keep it and apparently the federation kind of won that g- game and they're also really bad at it so I guess kind of goes to show how terrible the klingons would be. <laughs>
1: So at the men at the Enterprise has broken off their escort mission to investigate a Klingon ship that seems to be attacking a small, unarmed scout vessel.
0: Come on, Klingon dudes! This, this is the name of your own neighborhood. You're not allowed to do that here.
1: Also, they may be sort of passively investigating some rumors of a new Klingon weapon that's been floating around.
0: Dun dun dun! Is it some sort of death beam?
1: Might might have some death. going could be a death beam ray gun missile mega death ray
0: rocket torpedo there we go
1: they arrive just as the scout ship is being fired upon and the klingons refuse to answer hails so kirk orders scotty to beam the pilot aboard and prepare for battle with the klingon ship
0: so uh, are we anywhere near this ship and all this is going on here or do we need to warp over there they
1: need to warp because they always need to warp because it's the only way they move this ship in the original series
0: so I uh, was a warp factor seven or eight or something like that at some point yes. here. And...
1: No one knows what warp is. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. The scout ship is destroyed very quickly because it doesn't have any weapons and the Klingons are, they miss a lot, but they, they hit it eventually.
0: Well, maybe, uh, and the, the, it's not like, like you know, that we're not seeing any animated evasive maneuvers because that'd be too expensive. But, you know, even still, if you just, even assuming that, Klingons being this bad of a shot seems weird.
1: So The Klingons then turn their new weapon on the Enterprise, which is a woobly beam thing that freezes all of the Enterprise higher order functions, like engines, weapons, etc. They're basically dead in space.
0: Now I would like to sort of point out a moment Spock has here, where it's like, it's going to hit us in four seconds, and then like half a second later hits.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At the time he finished saying it, it's like when they get into those precise things i always wondered about that when they get into exactly four seconds however many fractions of a second did they factor in how long it took them to say that
0: probably not
1: (laughs) (laughs) also because the ship is frozen the pilot of the scout ship is trapped in the transporter and has yet to be materialized so these just floating there as atoms i guess
0: uh, maybe this will give a uh, Scotty an idea for something to try later.
1: Koloth, who is captaining the Klingon ship, hails Kirk demanding that they turn over the pilot that they're trying to rescue. But Kirk can't do that because this is Federation space after all. But uh, without ship's power, there's very little that he can actually do to stop the Klingons from boarding the ship.
0: So the Klingons would board the ship potentially and then find that the guy that they're looking for is presently floated to the transporter because they froze the ship.
1: Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Doesn't seem like a good plan, but eh, there you go. But just then Uhura reports that they're losing contact with their robot grain ships, which gives Kirk an idea. And he orders them to command the grain ships to ram the Klingons.
0: Ramming spade.
1: They approach the ship at different angles so that the Klingons are forced to extend their stasis beam weapon to stop three ships at the same time, but this is too much of a drain on their power, and it quickly turns off, freeing the Enterprise, and the Klingons are forced to flee as they fire with very low power on one of the grain ships, disabling its engines but not destroying it.
0: Well, that's convenient. Uh, we're still going to have a whole bunch of grain to feed to Sherman's planet and make sure that... You know, potentially millions of people don't starve. Hooray!
1: In the transporter room, Scotty can now finally get the pilot free of the transporter, which I also just want to point out in the profile. This is not important at all. But in the profile shots of Scotty working the machine, they're reusing animation from a previous episode where it was not Scotty working the transporter machine. It was a dude with a giant magnificent mustache, which you can still see in the profile shots. Of Scotty working the transporter. So Scotty has a magic mustache.
0: You can only see it at certain angles.
1: It's only there if you believe it's there.
0: <laughs>
1: so Scotty gets the guy to materialize just as Kirk and McCoy arrive to see Cyrano Jones and his bevy of pet tribbles.
0: I think this is a good point to uh, you know remind everyone of that one moment from Portal 2 where GLaDOS says, Oh, it's you.
1: Except... Kirk doesn't say, oh, it's you. He has the weirdest, most stilted line reading in the entire episode. (laughs) He goes, I think I know that man.
0: Uh, Oh, yes. Uh, He's our guest. star. I mean, uh, a recurring character for this episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Jones, who previously caused problems when he bought Tribbles onto a space station filled with exactly the same grain and you know, all that stuff from the last episode, now claims that the Tribbles are perfectly safe because he has genetically modified them to prevent them from reproducing.
0: Oh, well, that's kind of a nice thing then. They're not going to uh, fill up the entire uh, ship with their spawn. Hooray!
1: Kirk is still perplexed at seeing Jones here because he was supposed to be stuck back on the space station cleaning up Tribbles, but Jones was able to finish that very quickly because he found a natural predator of the Tribbles called a... Glomer.
0: We're glomer, something like that. Yeah,
1: It's a multi-legged creature that appears to feed on tribbles and does eye stalk things.
0: It's a real, real alien gizmo there. I like
1: it. Kirk wants to know what Jones did to tick off the Klingons so badly, but he isn't just not talking, so we're going to deal with that later.
0: We got Klingons to worry about. Let's start learning more about the Klingons then.
1: There is an entire scene of McCoy examining the tribbles where the only line he says is, hmm... It's hilarious because it just goes on for a bit too long. It's just, a, hmm, 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 hmm.
0: Yeah, it is. You know, this is a, an episode where a lot of stuff, you know, happens, but there's still moments like this where it's clearly just kind of need some extra material here to fill in.
1: Yeah. And it's just weird. This this is such a weird mix of intentionally hilarious because there's a bunch of decent jokes in this episode yes. and unintentionally hilarious because the animation is so bad. Yes. <laughs> Later, McCoy does confirm that these Tribbles do not reproduce, they just grow, so nothing to worry about. Just, you know, the new weapon transporting the grain and how everyone on this planet is starving.
0: Yeah, so we already got enough problems. These Tribbles are just going to be a a side distraction for the time being. Got it.
1: They move all the grain stores from the now-disabled ship to the Enterprise, which fills the entire ship, including corridors, with grain containers.
0: Well, I hope these uh, gang- grain containers remain nice and shut because there seems to be Tribbles getting everywhere.
1: Yep, and they continue on to Sherman's planet as the Tribbles do, like, move around the ship and sniff out the grain and stuff. Early on, they said, contain these Tribbles, and then they said, no, they're safe. And I guess they like, oh, okay, we don't let them wander around then.
0: Now, couldn't we at least seal them in a
1: room, maybe? Do literally anything to keep them from just wandering around everywhere?
0: yeah. I recall a uh, line from the first episode of uh, Red Dwarf, where they're you know, the you know the, the character Dave Lister has a cat, and that's no good because they're on a spaceship, and he's getting in trouble for it and getting you know, basically a big uh, talking to. And you know, it's like, what if it gets into Holly? Suddenly, you know, just nibbles something uh, cable here, and we're suddenly flying backwards. Don't you have any concern about about that in in on the Enterprise here.
1: Maybe the Tribbles just don't nibble cables.
0: (laughs) True. You can get in a plasma duck and clog it up, right?
1: That's true. (laughs) So the Klingon ship returns. This time they disable the grain ship uh, with a few shots and then shoot at the Enterprise a little bit, maybe because their new weapon hasn't recharged. But they do manage to knock over some grain barrels, letting the Tribbles at them. And also now the Enterprise has to tow the damaged grain ship in addition to carrying all the Targo, leaving them very open to attack.
0: We are at a strategic disadvantage here.
1: Kirk confronts Jones again, who is claiming that the new tribbles are harmless despite the massive one that keeps taking over Kirk's chair.
0: Yes, and throughout the episode, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger.
1: Yeah, this is just the best running joke. He keeps pushing a tribble off his chair, and every time it's twice as big as it was the last time. It's just great. (laughs) Before they can get very far into interrogating Jones, the... Klingons return again. This time, they do have their stasis beam thing, and they trap the Enterprise. Oh no. They again demand they hand over Jones, but Kirk, much to his deep regret and shame, recognizes that Jones is a Federation citizen, and so is under his protection.
0: Yeah, I'd actually like to get him off my hands here, but I kind of need to follow the rules here. Sorry.
1: So Krollath is now ready to board the Enterprise and takes Jones by force. Oh no! But as the Klingons prepare, Kirk orders emergency defense plan B. And when the Klingons open the doors to, I uh, presume their transporter room, they meet a bunch of tribbles.
0: Whoops! So apparently, a plan B was to send the tribbles over to them. Did we do this the last time?
1: Yes, we did. <laughs> Kirk demands Koloth release the Enterprise just as a huge Tribble rolls around behind him on the Klingon bridge. <laughs> Koloth, however, cannot relent because Jones took their genetically engineered Tribble predator and they need it back to take care of an ecological disaster that Jones has started by selling Tribbles to one of their planets.
0: So you're not actually looking for Jones, just the critter. Yep. <laughs> Why did you say so, Koloth? Come
1: on. Because the Klingons, I guess. Kirk agrees to this and sends the... Glimmer back despite Joan's protests. McCoy has also made a discovery that the super-large tribbles are not actually super-large tribbles, but colonies of a lot of tribbles.
0: So instead of uh, a bunch of tribbles that are just sort of splitting apart and things like that, they just kind of get pregnant and then have more inside them or something.
1: Yeah. So on the Klingon ship, Koloth brings the Glomer to the engine room, which was great. One of his uh, one of his crewmen's comes and says, "The engine room is filled with tribble."
0: <laughs> with tribble,
1: <laughs> they open the door to find one massive tribble, and the glomer runs away.
0: Uh oh! I don't think the glommer's going to be much help here.
1: Kothod is the tribble shot, which breaks up the colony into a million small tribbles, burying him immediately. Oh no! On the Enterprise, McCoy has a better solution, a drug that will slow the Tribbles' metabolic rate, breaking up the colonies and making them actually safe pets. No, oh, well, that's kind of nice. He injects a few and they break up, including one that Kirk is standing directly underneath, which breaks up and buries him in Tribbles. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> one day I'll learn.
0: <laughs> Never be underneath a potential source of Tribbles. I'll have to remember that for next time.
1: <laughs> so this episode was just hilarious. I feel like this is the thing. People need to understand that Star Trek is inherently ridiculous and just lean in.
0: Yeah, you know, there are ways to do to, to attempt that and to do it wrong, but this one does it very well.
1: It does. All of the best Star Trek episodes recognize their own inherent ridiculousness. Yes. And- <laughs> They are in some way funny, even if they're dealing with a pretty serious subject, which this one's not. But even if they're dealing with a pretty serious subject, most of them are at least a little bit funny because they recognize that dealing with a serious subject in a ship run by magic space rocks is ridiculous.
0: And so you can get away with uh, you know, poking a little fun at yourself and making good use of the totality of the collection of tropes you're using here in order to make something that's quite entertaining.
1: And... You know, I just just don't think I've seen better demonstrations of that than David Gerald's writing when he's not interfered with. Because he also did the original script for Cloudminders, but then it was rewritten to change his ending, which was supposed to be kind of a downer into a... There's a magic gas that's making everyone fight.
0: You know, it's a um, MacGuffin that we surprise everyone with at the last minute. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Now, this one also had a MacGuffin, but it doesn't matter because, like... The tribbles aren't high emotional stakes. The fact that they can fix the tribbles in the last two minutes of the show doesn't really matter at this point because we don't care that they needed to fix the tribbles. It's not really narratively important.
0: Yeah, it's more of a a, a, a sideshow to the main action. Yeah, you know, heck, even with the uh, you know the business with the, you know trying to get grain to the planet, you know they you know some of the grain gets eaten by the tribbles, but not all of it. In fact, there's a whole second ship out there with plenty of it on there, and so the people are not going to starve. Maybe they're not going to get as much as they wanted or needed, but they are going to have at least something.
1: And it's not like the earlier episode where maybe they were going to eat all the grain and then they discover that it was poisoned. Wait, spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) And then one of the tribbles is going to explode for later spoilers.
0: Yes. (laughs) Bomb tribbles. Uh, I do need to point out uh, that... uh, the tribbles appear pink in this episode, unlike the sort of browns of uh, the previous uh, encounter, and there's a very good reason for that.
1: Is it because it's difficult to animate darker colors?
0: Uh, not quite. It's uh, has something to do with Hal Sutherland being colorblind. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, that's also uh, part of the reason the uh, the Klingon episode uh, yeah, outfits are more like purplish and things like that. It's like, yeah, it looks look right to him. So yeah, go with that.
1: That's excellent. That's amazing.
0: So, uh, you know, the the, the tribbles are like little pink fluffy balls in this one here and that was not intentional. It actually intended them to be some sort of shade of gray.
1: I like pink tribbles. I mean, it's probably just a side effect of their genetic manipulation that makes them pink. Yeah, sure.
0: Uh, uh, in universe, I'll go with that explanation. (laughs) Also, uh, I, I think it's I think they're kind of adorable like this too.
1: So this episode doesn't deal with a lot of um, morality or difficult decision making. It's basically a funny episode where we bother Klingons with Tribbles, but it stumbles onto a few interesting things that actually have very modern parallels uh, with how we deal with invasive species. Indeed. Which, in fact, the tribbles are demonstrated to be a very classic invasive species trope where removed from their natural environment where presumably there would be some sort of natural predator or other influence that would necessitate the incredibly fast breeding. Uh, removed from that, the incredibly fast breeding becomes a problem where they immediately overwhelm their environment instead of having a natural counterbalancing with either a predator or a dangerous uh, environment that would cause most of the triple babies to die before they became an issue. So, first thing, we can talk about genetic engineering because that is something that's being tried possibly right now to try to deal with uh, troublesome invasive species, namely mosquitoes.
0: Mosquitoes. But but aren't they according to, I think Lillian was the endangered? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, a lot of mosquitoes are native. We have some like invasive and traded around mosquitoes it's really difficult to tell where mosquitoes are coming from they're also moving further north uh, as global warming comes in so where they used to be way more prevalent in like southern swampy areas at least in the northern uh north america now they're moving more and more north as we get global warming changing the local environment so they're becoming a bigger and bigger problem and uh, despite mosquitoes being annoying to deal with, they also are a very key component in spreading a lot of diseases. So dealing with the overabundant mosquito population is really on everyone's minds at the minute.
0: But uh, there are ways to sort of combat them, and you know people have been trying various forms of uh, you know dealing with their breeding pools or you know gassing them or whatever for years and years now. But uh, I have heard a little bit about this genetic engineering stuff, but uh, you're probably more up on the research right now.
1: Yeah, most of the other things have problems. Like People are probably familiar with uh, DDT. That was an original way that they were trying to deal with mosquito populations way back in the 50s. But spraying poison on everything gets poison on everything. Yep.
0: So I hope you guys like having poison all over your face
1: had a significant impact on bird populations. As a side effect, they had to outlaw it because it was basically decimating all local bird populations.
0: So we we don't have anything that flies anymore.
1: Yeah, and the birds were eating the mosquitoes, which causes a bigger issue later. So a current theory. This is mostly a theory. They haven't been able to test it on a large scale because of uh, significant political pushback and some slow processes there. But a current theory is that a way to deal with a mosquito problem that might not introduce such a random amount of danger into the environment is to introduce genetically engineered mosquitoes, namely sterile male mosquitoes.
0: So they'll uh, go around, get busy, but uh, not have no babies.
1: Yes, they will... Introducing a large number of sterile males into the population, or uh possibly, I don't know if this has been try is going to be tried, but ones that would introduce sterili- sterility to later generations. I think right now the plan is to just release a massive amount of genetically engineered sterile mosquitoes. And then they would outcompete a significant number of non-sterile mosquitoes. And hopefully lower the general population because so many fewer mosquitoes would be able to breed.
0: So you'd have potentially in the short term a increase in mosquito, you know, the total mosquito population. But a large fraction of that would be the sterile ones. And then, you know, it's like, well, the there's not going to be much of a next generation. So once this generation dies off, you know, the next you know, generation is going to be greatly reduced.
1: Also, introducing sterile males means that you're not increasing the disease risk because only female mosquitoes drink blood and therefore spread disease.
0: So I was like, well, there's a lot more bugs around, but they're not ones that are hurting us. Hooray!
1: So the general concern here is that somehow introducing this new genetic component into a population could have unforeseen consequences, which we won't know until we test. Now this one should, I say should, because again, we need to test this more, Be almost inconsequential because the genetic change makes them sterile, which makes it impossible for them to pass on their genetic changes. But again, until we see more wide scale testing, you can't be sure what the outcomes will be, which is where some of the pushback is coming from. Because in order to test this, they want to release a large number of these sterile mosquitoes into a more isolated island population that hopefully wouldn't spread too much, but basically use that island population as a testing ground. But the people who live there are a little uncomfortable with being used as a scientific testing ground.
0: You know, you want to be uh, fully sure that it's going to be safe and, you know, that your whole life uh, might just not get turned upside down due to, uh, you know, science gone amok or something.
1: Yeah, which legitimate concerns. uh, Some people seem a little bit overly scared of just the term genetic engineering because we're in that kind of age at the minute. But yeah, I can see people's point in going, why do you get to use our local environment to test your thing that you haven't tested anywhere else?
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, can't you just pick another random island here, uh, please? Right by us.
1: It's pretty interesting to see that even, you know, this was written 40 or so years before, they came up with any of these ideas, that's exactly the same uh, ecological containment strategy that Cyrano Jones came up with for the Tribble population.
0: Well, he attempted.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there was the idea, he just didn't do it very well.
0: So that's kind of interesting, uh, you know, how you know stuff from the animated series of Star Trek is still predicting stuff that we're trying now. So that's kind of cool.
1: Now, there's another thing that they tried in this episode that actually was tried earlier than this uh several times but one of the biggest failures in this was in the 1930s this this is just invasive species like all the way down yes. but <laughs> australia brought in sugarcane to farm in australia because sugarcane is a pretty valuable crop that can grow well in parts of australia the sugarcane got invaded by an invasive beetle called the cane beetle which was feeding on the sugarcane crops
0: Whoops. Oh, no, our sugar cane.
1: In order to deal with the cane beetle, which is the invasive beetle eating your invasive plants, they brought in a cane toad, which is an invasive predator, a large poisonous toad that is a natural predator of cane beetles.
0: So uh, I'm suddenly reminded of that uh, once uh, I guess, nursery rhyme song thing about the, I knew an old lady who swallowed a fly. She thought she'd die. And then she starts swallowing, swallowing everything else <laughs> in order to go So this the
1: seems like a good idea, right? Like, you have an invasive animal that's not native, and it doesn't have any natural predators, so bring in a natural predator. Makes sense. Like, in this episode, they brought in what was they supposed was a natural tribal predator, but apparently it was a genetically engineered tribal predator, as we learned later. The problem is, the cane toad, now in a new environment, discovered there was easier food. It never actually ate any of the cane beetles. The cane beetles, as far as I'm aware, are still an issue. Yep. And proceeded to eat all of the other native insects. It's
0: so, like, yeah, they, they've never seen something like me. ha! I shall gorge myself and reproduce. And suddenly there's uh, frogs everywhere.
1: Yep. And in addition, cane toads are incredibly poisonous. Their eggs are poisonous. Their tadpoles are poisonous, the toads themselves are poisonous, so they don't have any natural predators. There's
0: probably not going to, going to be anyone locally who decides to go after them either.
1: So, in Australia currently, there was an introduced population in the 1930s of about 3,000 cane toads. Estimates in Australia today put the number at several million.
0: Whoops. Yeah. So, uh, don't do that, folks. That's, uh, I also did a little bit of research on this sort of thing myself. And uh, on uh, not so far away from Australia, New Zealand.
1: Yeah, New Zealand has a lot of introduced predator issues. (laughs)
0: Yes. So uh, I think it was back in the 1800s, they were having an issue with rabbits, which are also an invasive species. And they were, uh, you know, mucking up the fields, and suddenly it's like, oh, we, all our sheep uh, are not able to, uh, that we've also imported, are not able to, uh, you know, eat as much grass because it's being eaten by all these freaking rabbits, man. And so they're like, well, get something to eat the rabbits. I know, let's get some stoats in here. And so stoats, if you're not aware, are these long boys. They're kind of like ferrets and weasels, kind of that same family there. Uh, And they're also really, really hungry, and they like to breed a lot. Uh, And so suddenly, uh, you know, over the next, you know, know, uh, know, a few decades, the rabbit population crashed, but uh, there are still rabbits around, of course. But so did the population of... All the native birds, you know, a good number of which, you know, are unique to New Zealand, and so you had, you know, suddenly, you know, these these large populations of native animals that were going from doing all right to suddenly near extinction or even extinct. Uh, and so, you know, people, you know, you know, are familiar with the kiwi, right? Well, there's mm-hmm. not many of them left, really, because of these little guys here going around and and eating their their young. Their eggs.
1: What's particularly interesting with New Zealand, they are so proud of their very unique natural habitat, which has a lot of terrestrial bird species because New Zealand did not have native terrestrial mammals yep. before humans brought them to the island, which means they had a lot of the same ecological niches for ter- small terrestrial mammals being filled by terrestrial birds like the kiwi the kakapo other now very endangered bird species
0: and so uh humans show up bring in their 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 stoats their rabbits their deer their goats their everything else their rats their mice
1: cats Uh, rats and airplanes yes
0: uh Uh, apparently horses are also on the list of you know invasive dangerous animals for the environment (laughs) and luckily Uh, and it just just screwed everything up, and suddenly the entire uh, environmental balance was kind of out of whack, and so they are very eager to get about fixing that, and so there's actually this uh, massive campaign in New Zealand called uh, Predator Free 2050, which is to make all of New Zealand predator-free by 2050, and and so they have, you know, putting a lot of money into this, a lot of, you know, public awareness stuff, you know, and uh, even offering up you know uh assistance on like setting up traps in like your neighborhood or your backyard so you can you know uh, uh capture critters that are going around and killing all the birds
1: and this is actually having some great strides they they've gotten a couple of their islands to be completely rat free which is something that was unheard of until recently they they're doing it so you can deal with these problems it just takes a lot of time effort and money
0: yes and so you know the the short-sightedness of the previous generations is being corrected Uh, slowly but surely and uh, i wish them much luck
1: so that leads into another kind of interesting thing though i will just say since i know a lot about new zealand birds because it's something i find really interesting the introduced sheep population that they brought into the new zealand mountains (laughs) has now become food for the local kias which are one of the only alpine parrots which are an incredibly intelligent fairly large parrot and they eat meat because they're omnivores but because they live in cold alpine areas they will eat fat and meat and they will sit on the back of sheep and like eat the back fat off of sheep which sounds awful but you shouldn't bring sheep into parrot area yes <laughs> so the parrots actually started eating the sheep
0: it's kind of impressive i have to say
1: mm-hmm. they also dismantle cars
0: so. <laughs> so uh be careful with your car in certain parts of New Zealand.
1: Yeah, these parrots will just dismantle anything you bring in there. Sheep, cars, buildings, french fries.
0: This is our land here. Go away. Otherwise, we'll yeah. keep
1: you apart. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So that goes into, I've got two more interesting things with invasive species here. And one of them kind of goes into this in the, uh, interesting question that uh, is like, it goes into things with like New Zealand having a weirdly unique habitat, same with Australia and other places. And it was something that some scientists started becoming interested in more recently. And there hasn't been a ton of research in here, but there's a couple of interesting theories as to why do certain species become invasive and other ones don't? So what we started looking at here is there there are a lot of introduced species in North America from Asia, because uh, parts of Eastern Asia and a lot of North America share a very similar ecosystem. So plants and animals from parts of Asia can live very well in parts of North America. We do not see very many invasive species going the other direction. There aren't a lot of invasive North American plants and animals in Asia, even though you might expect that all of the trade and globalization things that are happening you would possibly expect that the invasive species would just be spreading everywhere but in a lot of places it seems to only go one direction
0: so why is that why is uh, you know this environment here which is very similar not really you know working out for these new uh critters who are coming in
1: now again this is only early theories but From having looked at places where waterways were connected by either man-made or semi-natural canal systems, they've developed a bit of a theory that it has to do with sort of kind of the age of, but a bit more of, the amount of biodiversity in an ecosystem. So when two bodies of water are connected by a canal animals and plants and other things in those two bodies of water can go either direction through the canal. When you connect up two bodies of water that have a very similar amount of biodiversity, you do see this kind of cross-pollination where each body of water winds up with invasive species from the other. But when you connect an area of high biodiversity with an area of low biodiversity, it tends to flow from the area of high biodiversity to the area of low biodiversity.
0: So you sort of have uh, more options as far as figuring out what niches to take over uh, just because there's more options of, of critters on the one side.
1: So the kind of current theory is that areas of slightly lower biodiversity have had less time to evolve and propagate and fill all the niches and develop the same kinds of like balances and possibly even sort of to use like lack of a better term is kind of a like ecological defense system as an area with higher biological diversity that would have been around longer the current theory again strong quotes on theory for uh why we're getting more invasive species into north america than out of north america is because for a significant portion of the last ice age most of north america was covered in glaciers which limited the amounts of animals and plants that could live here, which is not the same for those similar parts of Asia.
0: Yeah, you know, the uh, glaciers of North America were, like, coming down to, like, Missouri or something like that. uh, Yes. To the greatest extent. While in Asia, it's like, yeah, we're kind of mostly north of China, so, eh?
1: So the general idea is that the biodiversity in Asia has just simply had more time to evolve than the biodiversity in North America.
0: I kind of make sense. But <laughs> again, you know, this is still early research. So that uh, so something that makes sense could still have a big. Well, also this other thing pop up later.
1: Yes, it's just a currently working theory. It seems to make sense. There's very limited ways to test it. But
0: what if we could create a whole planet where we could test these things and just sort of do whatever? That would be kind of horrible, wouldn't it? Sim Earth. Yes. <laughs> an awesome game uh,
1: <laughs> okay finally i have i have a final thing and this is a bit of an ethical conundrum that i've got for you
0: uh is it uh right to uh destroy all of a uh species in a geographical area
1: close are you at all familiar with a species of plant called a water wheel
0: no i don't think so the name sounds familiar but i have not no idea anything about it so,
1: so a water wheel is a carnivorous aquatic plant. It's sort of a free-floating vine-looking thing and it lives in waterways and feeds on uh small crustaceans, tiny fish, microscopic animals, that sort of thing. It's native to parts of eastern Asia. 90% of its habitat in eastern Asia is now gone. This is an incredibly endangered plant species. In the 1970s, it was introduced to parts of north america intentionally like they plant hobbyists started growing it in north america as just a hobby like people who collect carnivorous plants um one guy noted that it was incredibly endangered in its native range and he started seeding it around the american northeast where He noticed that it grew fairly well in outdoor ponds in, like, people's backyard collections, so he started seeding it in what he thought were isolated areas around uh, New York and New Jersey. It took off and is now an invasive plant species. Whoops. But it's also super endangered in its native range. So do you treat it here like an invasive species where... It may or may not be threatening local plants and wildlife. We just don't have enough data to know. But if you kill it off here, then it goes back to being an incredibly endangered species worldwide because it is basically extinct in its native habitat.
0: Indeed. Yeah, so it it can't really go home again.
1: But it can't stay here.
0: So once again, let's make that planet somewhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you wind up with a weird ethical dilemma. If you want to protect... Native species, possibly, again, we, we don't know if this is causing significant ecological damage yet, but if we wait to find out, it will have caused significant ecological damage.
0: So is there, you know, we've already kind of demonstrated that there's not a good way to sort of isolate it because attempts to do that have already failed.
1: Yeah, these, this was initially seeded in what were presumed to be cut off areas of water, like old quarries and isolated ponds and wetlands, but it spreads. So do you try to kill it off here even though it's basically extinct or do you let it grow here knowing that it might possibly have a negative impact on local wildlife but could save an endangered species?
0: Some part of me you know, suggests that maybe there's like some sort of b- between both option, uh, you know, options here uh, that you could basically actively uh, contain it to a certain degree uh, for the long haul and see how the local environment adapts to it. Uh, alternatively go, hey China, could you like restore some wetlands over here please?
1: Yeah, ideally they could do more conservation in its native range and they wouldn't wind up with this problem, but we have no control over that in North America.
0: That kind of sucks.
1: So, you know like right now, we're almost forced to wait and see because it would be such a massive effort to clean this stuff out of waterways. Mm-hmm. But it is just an interesting dilemma. You have a very, very similar dilemma. They weren't intentionally introduced in the same way, but uh, pythons in Florida ah, yes. are almost extinct in their native range, but they are a nuisance animal in Florida. There are bounties for hunting the things.
0: Yes. Um, my sister lives in southern Florida, and she's, you know, alligators and pythons are kind of the things she's worried about eating her pets.
1: Mm hmm. But pythons in you know, Southeast Asia are almost extinct.
0: So uh, do we let them hang out here or do we get rid of all of them then?
1: Yeah. So do you kill off an endangered species to prevent it from causing local species from becoming threatened or endangered?
0: That's, I think that's a, uh, an ethical dilemma that i have to t- think about more, a lot more personally, but uh, yeah, you know, our, our listeners are, uh, you know, feel free to like, give us your insights on this. I know we don't do much, like tell us what you think about stuff, but, I'm kind of curious, actually. Yeah, this uh, is
1: actually a really interesting one, so if you are interested, we have comments open on the YouTube, and if you join our Discord server, we would be happy to have some discussions with you.
0: Because this is one of the ones that I kind of don't know what the right answer would be.
1: And in this one, I don't think there is a right answer. There might be a least bad answer. I don't know what that is, but there's probably not a right answer.
0: Yeah, other than the the fanciful ones I came up with.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we should colonize Mars with water wheels and pythons.
0: Just fill up the entire area. It would be great.
1: It's the planet of the endangered species. Don't go there. The giant Martian pythons will get you.
0: Oh, that uh, reminds me of that one bit from uh, Dice Funk there. <laughs> Except those was tarrasques. Uh
1: Actually, that's, that's like, that is 100%. A plot line, like the the endangered species that are super dangerous to everything else is just 100% a plot line in Buzz Lightyear Star Command, the old cartoon. There's a planet they go to that is filled with endangered species that are just giant tentacle bug monsters that are trying to eat you.
0: (laughs) The only place we can let them live. Also, don't go there because they'll eat you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I thought they were referencing that when they did it in that Dice Funk episode. It's like, people should listen to Dice Funk. We reference it too often on this show. Good stuff. Well, that's all that I had. I had a lot of notes on invasive species, but the tribbles are only sort of invasive species, so it sort of ties in.
0: And I think your ethical question was more was uh, more potent than mine, so I think we're good on that front too.
1: It's <laughs> your ethical question: Should you throw fuzzy things at Klingons?
0: Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Or or at least bother them with triples, you know?
1: Bother, 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 bother.
0: Uh, So uh, I I think I'm about uh, good to go as far as my stuff goes.
1: Okay, then. It's probably time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show!
0: Everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. Where we got a whole bunch of contestants, and they seem to be multiplying quickly. So let's count up the points and uh, try to get uh, some of this sorted out, you know, sooner rather than later. So our first prize is the cup, uh, the Cosmic Muppet Prize, which goes to the Tribbles. Now in super sizes, what do they win, Gepwin?
1: The Tribbles need their own spin-off movie series. The Great Tribble Caper. The Tribbles (laughs) Take Manhattan. Triple Pirate Island. <laughs> triple Christmas Carol.
0: I, I would highly enjoy some of that. Maybe not everything, but some of that, yes. Oh! Our second prize is the terrible economics prize, which goes to once again to Cyrano Jones, because he's still trying to peddle a highly defective product to people who really don't want it. What does he win, Gepwin?
1: Cyrano Jones... I don't know how economics is supposed to work here. He's a con man grifter in a post-capitalist society, which confuses me. So I think he just gets school. He should go to school (laughs) and learn that he doesn't need to work anymore because you're in a post-scarcity society.
0: So, like, chill out, Mr. Jones. Um, maybe, Maybe that's why he's going to bother the Klingons. It's like the Federation people won't buy my crap. I'll go sell it to them, even though they hate me, because they'll buy stuff. Anyway, our third prize is the Tragedy of Errors prize, which goes to Koloth and, to a lesser degree, the Enterprise crew for not communicating sensibly or figuring out the real reasons for why the Cleons are pissed here. So what do they win, Gepwin?
1: Koath and Kirk get an intro to communications class at any community college because this was literally an assignment in my communications 101 class where you both get like a paper and you have to discuss who gets fruit for, an, for like an ecological disaster. And you learn that one of you needs the fruit juice and one of you needs the fruit skin. So it's really not a problem if you just talk to each other.
0: So uh even basic negotiation tactics could be useful here. Hmm. is Isn't Kirk supposed to be some sort of diplomat as well?
1: You, I don't know. I don't know what Kirk is supposed to be.
0: <laughs> He's the captain of the Starship Enterprise. But uh, but he doesn't win our last award today. Uh, that The uh, the one that uh, we're doing uh, sort of new here is the uh, Let's Forget This Ever Happened Prize, which goes also to Koloth, because this is just so embarrassing for him. He goes up against Kirk and later is like, yeah, I never went up against Kirk. Nope.
1: When does he win, get one? <laughs> I don't know what to call it for Klingon society. But he wins a like nice, quiet retirement somewhere. It's like he needs to just go hide. And I guess he does forget about this because when he shows up later in DS Nine, he does not mention tribbles.
0: Yes. <laughs> so uh, he's put this behind him. So far behind him, it might as well not exist because it was just he just that, that out of his league here or something or. Covered in 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 warm fuzzy critters.
1: Hmm.
0: Anyway, Gaben, I'm running out of steam here. Take us away.
1: All right. Thanks everyone for joining us, and thank you all for being here for the galaxy's favorite game show. (laughs)
0: Uh, stoats are pretty crazy, you know
1: yeah, they're like weasels with teeth yeah weasels have teeth, but
0: they're, they're like they nibble everything and they like reproduce real fast, so they're like tribbles that eat things.
1: That's like, the long tribble, it's like a long furby yeah, it's the long tribble. oh my god we can do we can do this. tube snakes
0: <laughs> tube snakes <laughs> two boys.
1: The long Tribble. I had a stuffed Tribble. I had a Tribble that was a stuffed Tribble that made noise when you squeezed it. It came with a two-pack of Trouble with Tribbles and Trials and Tribulations on VHS.
0: Nice. That's fantastic. They
1: did not include more Trouble, more Tribbles. I'm disappointed.
0: Because so you could have had had uh, this wonderful episode as well.
1: Yeah. Could have learned that there was an animated series. Yes. (laughs) Would have been aware of it. Existing. Hooray. (laughs) Okay. Next episode I've never heard of. um, Called The Survivor. Quote, not to be confused with The Survivor's Star Trek The Next Generation.
0: Yes. I'm a little familiar with this one, but not as far as like most plot details. So.
1: Yeah. Let's see. It is the sixth episode of The first season. Thank you Wikipedia. I would never have guessed.
0: <laughs> oh, we also have a an uncredited guest actor, uh, voice actor too.
1: Oh, uncredited. Yes. <laughs> okay, we've got Romulans, we've got Sulu, neutral zone, alien species that can transform its shape at will. Why is everyone so impressed by this when Odo does it? This is like the ninth time we've run into shape-changing aliens.
0: Well, it's because he can be kind of anything. Well, most other aliens have to be some sort of person.
1: Oh yeah. Well, that's not like Wesley's girlfriend and Next Gen. She was a weird ball of light or something.
0: Uh, is is, are, is that the one that also could become like uh like a like a a weird monster Ewok thing? Yeah. I don't remember the ball of light bit, but I'm getting it's been a while since I've seen that episode.
1: <laughs> it's not a great episode, but
0: you know it's uh the dolphin.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Believe is a reference to France. <laughs> France. <laughs> anyway, France is not the next episode here probably. No. I
1: don't I don't know what this is. There's some sort of shape changer does something to does something to the crew or not or empathizes with them too much. This, this is nonsensical to me. I'm try I try to skim these to see if I can get a general idea without spoiling everything and I just can't make heads or tails of what's happening in this plot.
0: I do remember that there's lots of tentacles.
1: Ah, oh, well, that's fun. Tentacles. Yes. The Enterprise is attacked by a tentacle. Monster. Fine. Whoops.
0: knight <laughs> sure, of those... the tentacle. Yeah, remember all the times in the uh, original series where they couldn't do uh, the Eldritch horrors? Well, now we can, so hooray. Oh,
1: well, that's fun. Okay, we'll figure out what in the world is going on with this episode next time on Watchers of Tomorrow.
0: Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. More troubles, more tentacles! You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtubecom Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, doctor Izix, on youtube.com slash and Twitter at izixlp.com. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by D-R-K-R-N. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.